Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning, GCC family. Hey, this morning we have the privilege and honor to get to hear from Dr. Todd Miles, who is a professor up at Western Seminary. Todd is one of the smartest, but also just most humble and wise guys that I know. He's from Henson Baptist Church, where he has served as an elder there for some time, but was just uh, transitioned off of the elder team as they transition elders on and off. Um, Jason Patterson, who's our director of family ministries, actually comes from Henson Church and uh, knows uh, Dr. Miles very well. So this morning we get to hear uh, from him and get the honor and privilege, like I said, to uh, hear him preach on the boyhood of Jesus. Hello, if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And as you're doing that, let me give you greetings from Henson Church, where I am a member. A special shout out to Jason and a Western Seminary, uh, where I get to teach. Uh, so uh, Luke 2, 52. Uh, Luke writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and careful investigation of all the facts here he says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are. We are on the other side of Christmas just finished celebrating the arrival of the Christ child, the, the birth of Jesus, where God joins us in our struggles and brings a salvation that we never could have managed ourselves. It, it is the time of Emmanuel, God with us, where the Son of God was born as a baby, a fully human baby. And it's a time worth celebrating for sure. Because we focus, at least for a while, on the humanity of Jesus. And indeed, at Christmas, the humanity of Jesus is more real to us than probably at any other time, with the exception of maybe uh, Easter, Good Friday and Easter. Uh, what, after all, could be more homely, humble, and approachable than the birth of a baby in a manger? Surrounded by shepherds, we're not exactly high on the Jewish pecking order. But then after the birth at Bethlehem, I'm not so sure that we in the church know exactly what to do with the humanity of Jesus. The Bible, the gospel narratives, they skip almost immediately to Jesus's public ministry. We, we, it's like we rejoin him as an adult. And as an adult, Jesus is wandering around doing remarkable and amazing and miraculous and, and, and messianic type of things. And when we go there, it's, it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that Jesus was, even as an adult, still very human. More than human, yes, the Son of God, but never less than human. And this morning, in this Sunday in between New Year's and, and Christmas, I want to cover the boyhood of Jesus. 
Everything that we know of Jesus's upbringing is provided by Luke in this passage. And if you're listening this morning, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. I would like for you to consider your need for someone to save you and, and, and what that person must be in order for that salvation to come. For the rest of you, if you do understand yourself to be a Christian, I, I would invite you to consider the importance of the humanity of Jesus. If Jesus is fully human, just like you, then what significance does that bring to every aspect of your life? And we might even throw in some parenting tips along the way here. Okay, so we're going to be focused in, in Luke chapter 2. And to establish the context for us, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. The, the angels have announced his birth to the shepherds, who in turn, they, they made haste to the manger to see. And everything that we associate with the first Christmas morning, the birth of Christ, is now over. Today, we cover as it were, the next day, the day after. All the wrapping paper is picked up. The tree is down. Mary and Joseph have to get on with their lives. And of course, I, I made the tree part up. There's, there's no Christmas tree as of yet. And, and, and of course, the, the, the Magi have not brought their gifts yet. So turn over to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And what we're going to see here with Jesus is despite that spectacular angelic chorus, there is a very ordinary upbringing. An ordinary upbringing for Jesus. Verse 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice According to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, our attention is drawn here to Joseph and Mary. They're the primary actors. Jesus is circumcised. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And Jewish baby boys had been circumcised for over 2,000 years at that point. Jesus is named by his parents, given the name that the angel had so directed Joseph to give. On the 40th day after Jesus' birth, Mary goes about the ritual of purification, just like all Jewish women had been doing since the time of Moses, 1,400 years. We read about this law given by Moses in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. It reads, And when the days of her purifying are completed, a woman who has given birth, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And I, I just want to pause in this narrative for a moment to, to point out parents are a powerful means of grace in the life of a child. Parents are a powerful means of grace in the life of a child. Let's, let's pause for a moment and consider this God-ordained role for Mary and Joseph. 
No, no doubt you're familiar with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Very familiar, right? But its familiarity should not cause us to rush past that truth. God the Father sent his son. Who's his son? The second member of the Trinity to save us, to reveal himself to us. And it is an awesome gift. It should make all of us drop to our knees in in wonder and worship every single time we contemplate it. So now, while maintaining that sense of awe, contemplate the manner in which God sent his son. The son of God is born as a human, incarnated, and he comes as a baby. The incarnation of the Son of God is the means through which humanity will be saved. The cosmos will be recreated. The lordship of God will be executed. And the glory of God will be magnified. And everything is at stake. This is the plan. Now, imagine, thought experiment. Imagine the angels wondering, how is the Lord going to pull this off? He's announced at various times that he's going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent. He's announced that he's going to send a a Davidic heir. But how is he going to do that? What awesome thing is the Lord going to do? And God's response, I'm going to send him as a baby. Wow. And then to make this plan work, here's the kicker. I'm going to give him a mom and a dad. To realize this plan, the creator and sovereign God grants custody, if you will, of that child to Mary and Joseph. And their task, be a mom and be a dad. Now imagine Mary and Joseph. The shepherds leave, the dust settles. What do they do now? Where's the instruction manual for raising the son of God? There is none. Now, even if the angels had dropped off such a manual for raising the Son of God, you know, like what to expect when you're expecting the Son of God, right? Even if the angels had dropped off such a manual, I suspect it would have been very unimpressive, very ordinary. Be a mom and a dad. Love and care. Provide. Nurture. Feed, clean, clothe, instruct, correct, protect, challenge, all the things that parents are asked to do. And to all you moms and dads out there, and maybe you're frustrated over the grind of parenting, that that 24-7 job of leaning into the mundane, please know that you have a holy calling. And and I get it. You're not not marrying Joseph, and, and you're not raising the Son of God but you are raising little divine image bearers, representatives of God on this earth, those whom God willing will one day be adopted into the family of the living God. And your task is exactly the same as that of Mary and Joseph. The instruction manual, as it were, is identical. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And for Mary and Joseph, that was doing all that the law prescribed for Jesus. He was circumcised just like every Jewish boy from the time of Abraham. 
for you, that involves doing all that the new covenant prescribes for you and your children. You're, you're a powerful means of grace in the life of your child. And you are, if you will, the means through which most other graces are going to come to your child. And so hang in there. You're, and, and, and I get it, right? Your, your child's not the son of God. In fact, contrary to your children's grandparents' opinions, your child's not even remarkable. Right. This is this is not Lake Wobegon where all the women are strong and all the men are good looking and all the children are above, are above average. That's just not reality. But think of it this way. You're not exempt from the ordinary means of grace, regardless of how gifted you think your child might be. If Jesus was not exempt, if Mary and Joseph were not exempt from the ordinary means of grace in the life of the Son of God, then how much more are you not exempt from the ordinary means of grace? Okay, so what am I talking about here? I'm, I'm talking about loving your child, praying for your child, offering appropriate truth at appropriate time, creating an atmosphere that's conducive to their growth in the Lord and in this world. Now, of course, Mary and Joseph did have a remarkable child, but they plunged into the ordinary things required of anybody at that time. So your job is the same. In fact, even if you're not a parent, we should take our cues from Mary and Joseph, especially as you head into this new year where you can make resolutions, right? But what might a good resolution be? Be faithful in the ordinary. Be faithful in the ordinary. Go, go back to our text here. Mary, we're told, offered a pair of turtle doves on her behalf. Now, wasn't that supposed to be a lamb? Didn't the law require a lamb? Well, when we read the next verse from that Leviticus passage in Leviticus 22, we find that the law gives an exception for those of lesser means. Leviticus 22, verse 8. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. The parents of the one who would be the very Lamb of God, offering himself on behalf of the world, were too poor to afford a lamb to offer on his behalf. And that was God's plan. From a worldly perspective, Mary and Joseph were faithful, but they were totally unremarkable. And our text shows here that they were faithful with the ordinary means of grace, they did what was required of moms and dads. Read the Bible, pray, meditate on scripture, gather with God's people for all of us, whether parents or not, these are the ordinary means of grace. Make it your commitment. It, even in this COVID environment, how, especially in this COVID environment, be faithful in the ordinary. The ordinary means of grace, I'll repeat them again, reading the Bible, praying, meditating on scripture, gathering as you can with God's people to participate in the ordinances of the church. Look at verses 25 through 28 now, and we're going to see that there was some expectation for this child. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. 
It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was the customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, so the young family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they're they're at the temple, and they run into a man named Simeon. We're told that he's righteous, he is devout, and is waiting for the consolation, the salvation of Israel. The righteous and the devout, we learn here, believe the promises of God, and they are waiting on God to keep him, keep them. The, the, The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon, that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. And so Simeon comes in the spirit. The spirit of the Lord is upon him when he sees and he recognizes the Lord's Messiah. And of course, we should just note here the active role of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Jesus in this passage. When when the spirits at work, people's attention are drawn, their expectation is drawn to Jesus. People see and recognize Jesus. And so Simeon is just elated. He takes the child in his arms and he recognizes this child to be the answer to prayer, the, the fulfillment of God's promises. And then in the spirit, he speaks. And what can we learn from this prophetic utterance of Simeon? Well, first off, we learn this, to see Jesus is to see God's salvation. The, the baby that Simeon was holding in his arms is not just an important person in God's plan to save his people. He's Quite frankly, he's not even the most important in God's plan. He is quite simply the plan. He is the plan. He is the Lord's salvation. We also see that that God is the one who makes and prepares salvation. It's a biblical truism that salvation is of the Lord. That is, if there's going to be any saving done, it's going to be done by God from start to finish. And in this case, it's done in and through Jesus Christ. You see, Simeon was devout, we're told, but, but we learn from this passage that, that we are not saved by our righteousness or our piety. Uh, we, we are not saved by attempting to balance the scales, by, by trying to do more good than bad, nor are we saved by the acts of Christian service or even those means of grace I mentioned earlier, Bible study, church attendance, all those things, right? And, and of course, all of those things are good in and of themselves. But in order to understand how to be saved, we have to understand what or whom we need saved from. And and what the scriptures teach us is, quite frankly, we need saved from God because we are sinners. We need saved from his righteous judgment. And of course, in and of ourselves, that is impossible because we're covenant breakers. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are saved by looking 
to Jesus. We are told that in this passage that the salvation of the Lord is prepared in the presence of all peoples. Simeon understood that salvation of God was public and it was for all people. And this is underscored in Simeon's next statements. He, this salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. It makes us think back when God had told Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through this child of Abraham, this family of his. God's plan from the beginning was the salvation of all peoples, the nations, the, the, the ethnos, if you will. And of course, here we are. Salvation is a light for the glory to people Israel. See, I, we're told in Isaiah 46 that, that God makes this promise of bringing near his righteousness. It's, it's not far off. My salvation will not delay, God promises. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This salvation in fulfillment of promises will be accomplished in and through Israel. The, the nations will be blessed. They'll be saved through Israel. And Mary and Joseph, they, they just marvel. Maybe at the scope of salvation, but more likely, you know, they're in the grind at that moment, the grind of caring for a young baby, and they needed encouragement. And so, so Simeon turns to them, and he talks of this glorious salvation that will be won but it's going to be costly. Humans are going to resist the Lord's salvation. It's it's not going to go smooth, Simeon tells the young mom and dad. Jesus' ministry, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for the people who love him because Jesus' path is not easy. Choices are not simple. Jesus is going to bring division, and Mary and Joseph needed to hear this. Mary would watch Jesus be rejected by her own children. She would see her own people turn against her son, demand that he be killed. And then she would see the Roman government itself nail him to a cross. Of course, Mary was his mother. It would not be. It was not easy for her. And Mary had to be prepared for the rejection of her son. Because what you need to understand is that salvation is costly. You need it desperately, but salvation is costly. And it would cost this young child who would grow up to be a man, Jesus Christ, it would cost him his life. But of course, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that Jesus would pay the penalty for our sin. He would die. He would take our place. And then because he was righteous, because he is the son of God simultaneously, God raised him from the dead. And the promise of the gospel is that Jesus's death is sufficient for any and all who would place their trust in him that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But more than be saved, you will be adopted into the family of God, a co-heir with Jesus. Now, it is a costly salvation, but it is free to you if you will believe. 
course, Jesus, even though this is inexplicably good news, would be and still is rejected by most. And so just as Mary needed to be prepared, so do we. We in the church need to be ready as well. Jesus's ministry was not and is not universally received. It's, it's available for the nations, but the nations are not going to accept it. And Jesus warned us of this too. He told his disciples, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Simeon, in his words to the young mom and dad, goes even further. He tells them that Jesus' ministry is going to reveal the condition of people's hearts toward God. One of the most significant kingdom teachings in Jesus' parable of the soils is that the kingdom is not going to be universally received. In fact, it's the condition of the heart that's determinative. The people will reject the kingdom, not because the kingdom is deficient, but because they don't have hearts that are ready for it. Well, Jesus warned us about this, but our task is to share and to teach and to preach the gospel with boldness. Uh, we, we, we have to do our best, right? We, we need to try to answer the questions of those with whom uh, we share the gospel. But, but in the end, people may or they may not come to Christ depending on the, their hearts. They, they won't come to Christ unless their hearts are ready, and only the Lord can change a heart. It's not up to you. It's, that's way above your pay grade. Response to Jesus reveals the condition of a person's heart toward God. And that's precisely when we're introduced to Anna. Anna says of Jesus that this is the redeemer of Jerusalem. Anna is a prophet, but that's not the most important thing about her in this passage. The the critical issue in this passage is not her gifting, but the status of her heart. She's devout, focused on serving God. She welcomes Jesus What's the condition of Anna's heart? Well, I think we know, don't we? She, she thanks, she praises God for Jesus because she sees rightly that he's going to bring salvation to Israel. He is the redemption of Jerusalem. And then she gets busy telling others about the Lord's salvation through God's Messiah. I want to pause. Let, let that sink in. Anna's response to seeing Jesus is to thank God, praise God, and tell others about Jesus. Verses 39 and 40, we have another passage that reminds us of Jesus' ordinary upbringing. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was with him. So with these prophecies ringing in their ears, Mary and Joseph continued to do all that the law requires. They go home to Nazareth. And we have this statement of the boyhood of Jesus, a summary, if you will, of the next decade of his life. Jesus grew, became strong, and was filled with wisdom. The priority of Jesus' upbringing, it seems to me here, is prudence, wisdom. We're told in the Bible that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is being able to apply truth to life correctly, adeptly, appropriately. We're told that also that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. And 
this year, maybe you have your New Year's resolution to read through the Bible in a year and you know, read, definitely do that. As you read through the New Testament, look at the priority of wisdom. Maybe take a highlighter, highlight each time you see the word wise or wisdom. And I think you'll be surprised. Seems to me that, 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 that one of the primary goals of sanctification and discipleship is that we grow in wisdom. That's going to be a priority that you see over and over and over again as you read through the New Testament. I think, again, you'll be surprised by the volume of references to wisdom. It's the goal of our sanctification, to be transformed into the image of Christ, in whom are contained all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How do you grow in wisdom? The ordinary but difficult means of grace you read. You study, you gather with God's people, you, you receive instruction and correction, you learn. If you, if you want to go back to the whole idea of parenting at this point, if that was Mary and Joseph's priority, then that should be yours as well, that your child grow in wisdom. Look at verses 41 through 50, we'll see another promise. Every year, Jesus' parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? They didn't understand what he said to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. In Luke's narrative, we fast forward now 12 years to another pilgrim feast. All the faithful Jews at that time did so. They, the family of Jesus, they sojourned to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And we're told that this was their habit. They are a pious and faithful people. Tradition tells us that men were required to go, but not women, who would often stay behind during the festival. For a woman to make the trip was an act of even greater piety. So this probably speaks well of Mary, the priority that she places on going. This trip, though, is not going to be like the others. Typical practice was to go in caravan to and from the pilgrim feasts. Family and friends from Nazareth, they, they all travel together. It's, it's not only more fun that way, it's like a traveling party, right? But it was much safer since the roads were often populated by rogues and, and bandits and so they make it there, they do the Passover thing, and then they're, they go to leave and caravan sets out. Mary and Joseph apparently just assume that Jesus is in the group. Later, to their horror, they discover that Jesus is not with them. And, and they react immediately. Why? Because they're parents. Any parent would be hugely concerned over this. But for Mary and Joseph, the stakes are maybe a little higher because they had just lost the Son of God. Right, So they, they turn back and they search throughout Jerusalem for him. And we're told on the third day of the search, they finally find Jesus in the temple 
sitting amongst the rabbis, asking them questions. Seems like Jesus is always found on the third day, isn't it? I'll let you think about that, especially when it comes time to, for Good Friday and Easter. At any rate, the, the rabbis are impressed with his understanding. They like his questions, and then they ask, and when they ask him questions, they like his answers. Mary and Joseph are just astonished, relieved, and stunned. And they actually scold Jesus, showing more restraint than most parents, at least I would. <laughs> right? Mary questions Jesus, why would you do this? Why'd you treat us like this? We were in distress. Jesus responds as though the problem is actually theirs. <laughs> why were they looking anywhere else other than here? Didn't you know I had to be, I must be in my father's house? I mean, G Jesus didn't just, did, he didn't just happen to be there. He had to be there. It was necessary. Mary and Joseph, they just stare at Jesus in disbelief. Joseph's like, just get in the car. And then they head back to Nazareth, right? But we're told that Mary pondered these things, reflecting on the nature of her son. We, we aren't told what she was thinking, but we are told that Jesus was submissive. Now, what do we learn from this exchange? Well, it tells us that Jesus knows who his father is. This most human of children knows that he's simultaneously God's son. He's growing in his messianic consciousness. We've, we've focused on this ordinary upbringing and humanness of Jesus. But of course, Jesus, though fully human, was not merely human, was he? He was the divine son, the Lord's Messiah. And I suspect that he did not come out of the womb with a fully formed messianic consciousness. I suspect it was revealed to him by the Spirit through his study of scripture when he was at synagogue or more likely when he was sitting on Mary's lap and she recounted to him the promises of God that was made to her about the destiny of her child. She would rehearse them over and over again with Jesus. So we return to our introduction. What do we do with the humanity of Jesus? Do we understand its importance? Do we comprehend the absolute necessity of Jesus' humanity? The gospel writers did. And in the narratives of the boyhood of Jesus, and everything that we know about Jesus' boyhood, we know from Luke, there are some really interesting stories that demonstrate that Jesus was a child of destiny. I mean, after all, old and wizened prophets proclaim the Lord's plan for his child. Temple leaders and teachers are astounded at his understanding. But the boy Jesus that Luke presents is very much a human boy. Despite the events surrounding him, he is pretty ordinary. And what we know is that unless Jesus is a human being just like you and just like me, we cannot be saved by him because it takes a human to atone for sin. It takes a human to substitute for a human. It takes a human to substitute for you, to pay your price, to reconcile you to God. Now, it takes God to do that simultaneously. There's the wonder of the incarnation. But let's 
think about the humanity of Jesus because Jesus being a substitute does not exhaust all that the humanness of Jesus wins for us. We have a high priest, we're told in Scripture, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a Messiah who is our ever-present help in temptation. We have an advocate who sits at the right hand of God, who, who knows what it is like to be human, who lives to intercede for us. So this morning, just as we've been doing for the last month, Turn your hearts toward God and celebrate the sending of Jesus Christ. Contemplate the mystery of the incarnation and rejoice that God became human in order to save us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning for what you have done for us in Jesus. We are thankful that you sent a Savior, one who is like us in order to save us. It is a profound mystery, this gospel. But we understand some of what it takes to save us, and we are grateful. We are grateful for Jesus's coming. We're grateful for his life. We're grateful for his obedience. We are grateful for his sacrifice. We are grateful for his resurrection. We are grateful for his ongoing ministry now. Father, may we take heart that we are wanted in God's family, that we are loved by you, and may we respond in obedience in the ordinary things of life that we see modeled for us by Mary and Joseph and Jesus. May we be quick to depend upon you and demonstrate that through our practice of reading the Bible, memorizing scripture, prayer, gathering with your people, celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptism, all of these ordinary means of grace that mean the world to us because it's through them that you grow us in wisdom and you transform us in Christ's likeness. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.